practice is a practice of mindfulness, mindfulness and alertness. We seek to be mindful of the body. That's the first foundation of mindfulness in meditation and in all of our postures. Uh, we make an effort to be mindful of the body and to be alert. We make an effort to be alert to how the body feels, how the body feels. Practice mindfulness of feeling tone, Vedana. We talked about this this morning, being mindful of how the body feels. in large part in being alert as we practice meditation and in particular as we go through our days. Uh, uh, in particular in being alert to how the body feels, uh, we're alert to uh, the unpleasant sensations in the body. The body is subject to all manner of unpleasant sensations. We're alert to pain in the body. As we go through our day, we may notice pain. Sometimes we may often notice more subtle experiences uh, in the body that are uh, unpleasant in terms of sensations. Uh, we may notice and we make an effort to notice in being alert to how the body feels uh, the various forms of dissonance in the body. The more subtle unpleasant sensations, the way the body is disposed, what the body feels like. So as we go through our days, we may notice various types of dissonance in the body, tightness, contractedness, tension, uh, more subtle forms of physical stress, what I sometimes call dis-ease. So for instance, uh, as you go through the day, you may notice your shoulders are tight. You may notice they're, they're scrunching up a little bit or they're twisted a little bit to the side so, uh, you know, and there's a, a, subtle, a subtle pain there, right? There's a, it's an unpleasant sensation. There's a subtle pain. There's a subtle disliking of it, you know, and subtle, you know, we're, we're not really noticing it. Usually as we go throughout the course of the day, you know, the average run-of-the-mill person is not noticing that, you know, that those, these little dissonances, the way the body tightens and contracts and is in stress, and, you know, is really not noticing the disliking the disliking that's there is subtle. It's very subtle. You know, oftentimes somebody will say to you, how are you feeling? You know, and you'll say, I don't feel so good, right? You know, we tend to think when we say that, well, I'm saying that because I don't feel so good because, you know, I'm having trouble at work. But really, you don't feel so good because the body doesn't feel so good, 
And a lot of the times we don't even realize the body doesn't feel so good. But if you were having trouble at work and the body was in a state of flow and ease and pleasure, you'd say, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. Now, of course, the body might be contracted a little bit or tight and the shoulders might be scrunched a little bit because you're reacting to the stress you're feeling at work. You know, so the, the mental and emotional stress about what's happening at work is causing the body to tighten up because the mind conditions the body. The mind is the forerunner of all things. You know? And of course, the shoulders might be a little tightened up because of the troubles you've been having at work. You know? Going back throughout the course of your work history or maybe into previous lifetimes and Shoulders might be also scrunched up a little bit because of myriad other things in your life that are difficult or challenging that we've experienced. So we may notice as Dhamma students seeking to transcend the realm of the run of the mill that uh, the body is tight, contracted. We may notice this as we go through the course of our day. We may notice the shoulders are, are scrunched just a little bit. So we bring awareness to that as Dhamma students. We just, and, and, it, and it's just a simple awareness, just for a moment, oh, there's scrunchedness, the shoulders are a little scrunched. And we bring awareness to that, and that moment, that finger snap perhaps of awareness, there's a little bit of space, equanimity, a little bit of equanimity in that space of awareness, that space of awareness is free from liking and disliking. There's a little bit of equanimity and some acceptance and the shoulders kind of come into a more easeful quality, take on a more easeful quality in that space of awareness, free from dukkha, where there's no liking or disliking. We can just allow the body to align, allow the shoulders to align, come into ease. You don't have to do anything, right? You don't have to do anything, just bring awareness. It's like right now, maybe there's a little tightness or tension in the body. Maybe it's not your shoulders. Might be. Uh, maybe some other part of the body. Just notice that and just allow the body to come into a state of ease. You don't have to do anything. Just bring awareness to what's there. Be alert to what's there and bring awareness to it for a finger snap. You know, when you're doing that, you're not trying to align the body. You're not trying to align the shoulders, right? In other words, you're not using thought well, maybe if I turn the shoulder a little quarter inch to the left and drop the right shoulder a little bit and move the neck back, and you sometimes do that in meditation, right? You know, and it's like, you do that, you're just going to really screw it up. You know, you're really going to screw it up. Uh, you're not trying to fix it. If you do that, you're just going to create more dissonance. We're not doing anything. We're just bringing awareness to the way the shoulders feel and allowing our innate wisdom Allowing our innate wisdom. Allowing our innate wisdom. We're allowing our innate wisdom to bring the shoulders into alignment, to allow the shoulders to come into easeful alignment. It's like right now, maybe there's another sensation. Just bring awareness to it and just allow the body to come into alignment. Allow that part of the body that's contracted, tight, tense to come into alignment. So we bring awareness to our experience and we allow our innate wisdom to bring the body into alignment, into tune, into tune. 
You know, when the body is in tune, there's a quality of ease. Right? When the body is in tune, there's a quality of ease in the body. Energy flows, flow of energy, PT. It's a physical quality, a flow of energy. When, when the ease is fully developed, the energy flows uninterruptedly and unhindered throughout the body. Energy flows. When the body is contracted, the shoulders are tight, you know, the back is a little twisted, the arm is this way, you know, the energy doesn't flow. The energy just keeps getting blocked off throughout the body. When the energy flows, when there's this quality of ease, when we allow our innate wisdom to bring the body into a state of ease, there's pleasure. The pleasure is the way the mind relates to the way the body is. Right? So when the body's in a state of ease, the mind registers pleasure. That's pleasure. It's a mental quality. The body comes into a state of ease, right? The shoulders come into that state of ease. You can just feel that if you do it right now with whatever part of the body might be tense. Not right, right now, you're in probably such a state of bliss that maybe that won't work. But you know, when you when you allow when you bring awareness to what's there and allow the body to come into a state of ease, it's just like you know, it's that subtle pleasure, right? It's a subtle pleasure. So, you know, the organism, the organism will self-regulate. The organism will self-regulate. It will come into tune. We, come, we become out of tune and stay out of tune because of the mind, the untrained mind. You know, the untrained mind causes the contractedness and the dis-ease, the dissonance. You know, so when the mind is dysregulated, the body becomes dysregulated. And then, of course, as the body gets dysregulated, then the mind becomes more dysregulated. And as the mind becomes, you know, so it's just, you know, there's, it's just that cycle of, of birth and death, of pain and suffering. So whenever there's a little bit of aversion, a little bit of aversion, the body, you know, there's a little bit of dukkha, the body, you know, tightens. And there's a little bit of desire, the body tightens. And when there's some liking, the body tightens and stiffens. And disliking, the body tightens and stiffens. And we experience some subtle trauma. You know, we experience these little subtle traumas during the course of the day. And the body twists and turns. Or big traumas, and the body twists and turns. mind conditions the body, causes stress in the body, dis-ease. And when that happens, you know, when there's this stress and dis-ease, uh, uh, there's, there's, you know, so, so there's this stress and this dis-ease. Uh, the mind is in a state of stress, dukkha, to some extent, the body is in a tight and stiff state, right? And when there's dukkha, what is that? What's dukkha? What's dukkha? The heart is blocked, right? The heart is blocked, so we're cut off from our innate wisdom. So the organism's capacity to self-regulate is compromised. So the body is not self-regulating because, you know, the mind is in a state of dukkha, and you're cut off from your heart, from your... Your, your innate wisdom, your capacity to regulate. So of course this, this stress 
is compounded in the mind. You know, our mental stress is compounded, uh, the result of uh, all the various forms of aversion and desire, liking and disliking, subtle and blatant traumas over the course of our life. And the dis-ease in the body is similarly compounded. You know, it's a process of dis-ease, process of mental and physical dis-ease that is uh, the result of a lifetime of aversion and desire, liking and disliking, dukkha. So when the organism is afflicted with stress, uh, there's dis-ease, pain, there may be disease. When the organism is in this state, we function at a diminished level. We function at a diminished level, and our capacity for happiness is compromised. Our capacity for happiness of heart, true happiness, is compromised. When the body is in this state of dis-ease, dissonance, stress, that's the bad news. The good news is we have a capacity for ease. You know, we have a capacity for an easeful flow of energy. Uh, the body has a capacity to regulate, and we can cultivate this capacity. This is one of the most important things we're doing in practicing mindfulness, is we're cultivating the body's capacity to self-regulate. We're cultivating our connection to, you know, we're cultivating. We're cult we have that capacity, we have to cultivate it, right? We're cultivating our innate wisdom. Our innate wisdom inclines the body to ease and pleasure. This is very important. Our innate wisdom inclines the body to ease and pleasure. This is something that uh, they've actually been studying in neuroscience. The neuroscientist Antonio Damasio wrote a whole book about this. Our wisdom inclines us to pleasure, ease. It makes sense, right? That your innate wisdom would incline you to ease and pleasure. Your innate wisdom that would incline you to what's in your best interests, right? You know, your innate wisdom isn't going to incline you to disease and pain. It wouldn't be very wise. We wouldn't call that wisdom, right? You know, we have an innate wisdom that inclines us to what's in our best interests, inclines us to ease and pleasure. So the, our innate wisdom, as Damasio says, and I write about this in my, in my book on skillful pleasure, uh, our innate wisdom inclines the body to the most favorable state, the state that in which we can thrive, which is easeful and pleasurable. Our problem is we're cut off from our innate wisdom, right? We're cut off from our innate wisdom. You know, I, I've done a lot of yoga and different kinds of body work, and I'm ne I have never been much for massage, but, uh, you know, my experience, and I, all those are great practices, you know, I, have, I don't, it's not a, I don't, I wouldn't, uh, offer a knock on any of those practices, and I encourage it. We've done yoga retreats. Uh, but 
my experience, and I think it's pretty indicative of uh, at least the way some of these body practices are taught, is, uh, you know, I would do yoga, and, you know, there'd be, you know, or the few times I would have a massage, you know, the body would feel good for a little while, you know, but gradually it would just go back to the state it was in previously because the mind wasn't any different. You know, I wasn't looking at the root cause of my physical dis-ease, which is the mind, right? And the fact that my dukkha was cutting me off from my innate wisdom. Now, sometimes in yoga, we start to connect more into our innate wisdom. You know, but that's what's really going to bring. So I always found uh, you know, yoga was limited for me in terms of the kind of stress. I mean, I had a lot of stress, contractedness, tightness in the body. You know, so I'd go to do yoga, you know, and I'd feel, ah, I'd come out of it. You know, it's like you could, you could shoot a bullet at me and it would bounce right off me. That's how I felt. You know, the body was just in this blissful state, you know. And, but, you know, two hours later, I was like, you know, my curmudgeonly contracted self. You know, and the body was in a state of dis-ease and dissonance. So in Buddhist practice, we're coming to the core of our dissonance, our physical dissonance, which is the mind. The mind is the forerunner of all things. So the Buddha's pivotal insight uh, before he became the Buddha, I always say this is when Buddhism became Buddhism, was the insight as he sat under the rose apple tree after six years of practicing asceticism, self-denial. And he came to the insight that uh, and, he, and he, the insight was, uh, you know, he remembered a time when he was a child, right? He remembered a time when he was a child, and he was, he was just kind of sitting in the field, and his father was working in the field, and his body was in a state of bliss. You know, his body was in a state of bliss that wasn't dependent on, you know, lemon sherbet or anything like that. It was, it was just the body was in a state of internal bliss, rapture, piti, sukha. Uh, and he realized that in order to awaken, you know, that was the most favorable state, that that was the path to awakening, that the body needed to be in a state of ease. You know, that was the state in which we could thrive, he could thrive, in which he could awaken. So the path, he realized, had to include this quality of ease and pleasure. So this skillful pleasure that he that he, in some ways, came upon uh, is an internal pleasure, right? It's not the pleasure that comes from external sense experience, you know, like food or entertainment or the internet or whatever. Uh, it's an internal pleasure that we all have a capacity to develop within us. Skillful pleasure. The Buddha realized this is the most favorable state, the state of inner ease and pleasure. It's the state in which we're most functional. We function at the highest level. You can think of just some really simple examples of that. You know, if the body is in a state of ease and there's an internal pleasure, our capacity to relate to other human beings is, 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 is much greater. You know, if the body is in a contracted state, it's hard to relate and it, and it tight and there's pain and there's disease in the body. It's hard to relate to others the heart is blocked off. We can't relate to others with love and with compassion. When we're contracted, 
we relate less skillfully when the body has, is in a state of ease, we're able to be connected to the heart, we relate skillfully to others. So this most favorable state is a state of internal ease and pleasure, and it's a state in which we're able to be connected to the heart. We're able to be connected to the heart. As I say in my book, you know, we cultivate internal skillful pleasure because it brings us closer to the heart. So the cultivation of the breath and an easeful breath and the body and an easeful and pleasurable abiding, what we're doing here is an act of metta and love for ourselves and others, right? And others. Because when we're in that state of ease and pleasure, we're able to be connected to the heart and make the most of our lives and know true happiness. So what we're doing in cultivating meditation and present moment awareness and ease and pleasure is an act of love. And so you know we've been talking about uh, that intention, right? I'm doing this out of love and compassion for myself. It's not because, I mean, maybe in part, it's because in doing that it feels good, you know? But that's more of a, you know, a sense desire type thing, right? We're not doing it because it feels good. We're doing it because it puts us in a position to make the most of our lives, you know, to take action that's in support of love and compassion for ourselves and others. That's why it's an act of love for ourselves, not because it feels good. So, so making that kind of connection in having your intention in meditation is really important. It's really important. Because, I mean, this is a little bit of a, you know, food for thought, no pun intended, but, you know, just to do all the work that we're doing for some, just for, just for some pleasure, for the sake of pleasure, it is easier to just go to the refrigerator, you know? You know, key lime pie will do the trick, you know? But it's not gonna oh, it lead you to your heart and enable you to take action out of love and compassion for yourself. Actually, it's gonna do just the opposite. Because that you eat that key lime pie, there's going to be desire for another slice. The heart's going to start to block off. And that's what the Buddha realized. You know? So this is a profound act of love for ourselves. You know, because it brings us into the body and into the heart. And we can live from the heart and thrive. So the Buddha said that uh, as Dharma students... We seek to be in tune. We seek to be in tune. The Buddha was a musician. He came from a family of musicians. So he used metaphors sometimes that had uh, a musical connotation. He said, we seek to be in tune with the Dhamma, with the Dhamma inside, with the heart. You know, we come into the body in meditation so that we can come to the Dhamma inside, so that we can be in tune with the heart, with our innate wisdom, with compassion, metta, love. So in this state of being in tune with the Dhamma, you know, there's a quality of harmony, of ease that we experience as we go through our days.
as opposed to that contractedness and tightness. It's an act of love to do this. That's why one of the meta phrases is, may I have ease of being. To cultivate ease of being is an act of love. Because when we have ease of being, we're able to make the most of our lives and be connected to our heart. So in cultivating ease of being, it's an act of love for ourselves, but also others. Believe me, it's an act of love for the others in your life. It's an act of love for the world. You really want to, you know, I I gave a Dharma talk on this recently. You want to change the world, be a being who moves through the world with ease and internal pleasure and grace and equanimity and peace. So when there's ease in the body, the organism thrives. Our objective is to thrive. This is why we're here. You know, we're not here to be run-of-the-mill. You know? We didn't need to come here to be run-of-the-mill. We could stay home and be run-of-the-mill. You know, we're here so we can thrive. When we're in tune, when we're in tune with the Dhamma and the heart, we're able to thrive. We learn a lot about being in tune if we look at the way that we make effort, in particular effort in meditation or effort on a retreat. It's a really great practice uh, being mindful of our effort and learning to be in tune in terms of our effort on retreat. The Buddhist teaching on making effort in meditation, which is really consonant, uh, completely consonant with making effort in life or being in life, uh, 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 is, 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 is uh, found in different places, but in particular, one of the most well-known places in his, in his teaching to the, the monk, the Venerable Sona. And uh, Sona was over-efforting. He was over-efforting to the point where uh, he was doing walking meditation and his feet were bleeding. His feet were bleeding. (coughs) What does it say? He said, uh, after doing walking meditation until until the skin of his soles was split and bleeding. So hopefully we didn't have anybody over-efforting to quite that level here. Uh, But uh, Sona was over-efforting. And uh, his effort was unskillful. His effort was unskillful. So how we make effort uh, is uh, a really good way to understand how to be in tune, how we're not in tune and how to be in tune. I mean, unless we learn to be in tune, unless we train the mind and train ourselves to make effort differently, skillfully to be in tune, the way we make effort is going to be what? It's going to be a function of our past karma. We're going to make effort in meditation the way we've made effort in everything else in life. So one of the things about the effort that you make in meditation that's unskillful, you learn a lot about your past karma. 
You learn a lot about your past karma. I mean, I've learned so much on retreat about my karma, my past karma, you know, which is going to be my present karma unless I do something about it. I've learned so much about my past karma by, by really looking at the way that I made effort on retreat. You know, pushing and striving and hating what I was doing and getting down on myself and getting impatient and frustrated. And does any of this sound familiar? Yeah. Any of this sound familiar? We learn a lot about our karma, and we learn about how to change our karma. So I learned a lot about how to change my karma by paying close attention to my past karma and how it influenced the effort I was making on retreat and my dharma practice in general. You know, for most of us, all of us, our past karma has probably been pretty unskillful in terms of how we've made effort. So Sona was pushing, 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 driven by unskillful desire, wanting, the wanting mind. Yeah, driven by unskillful quality. He was out of tune with the Dhamma, and he started to feel averse to the practice. That's what happens when your effort is unskillful. You know, your feet might not be bleeding, but you know, you, you know, you're going to be pretty unhappy and about with the way things are going, and you're going to be averse to the practice. So he became a very averse to the practice, and he started to have thoughts of doubt. You know, you know go back to the householder life, leave the retreat. You know? Well, the Buddha, of course, got cued into what was happening with Sona and uh, gave him the teaching, this well-known teaching, where he told, taught Sona how to be in tune. And the way he taught Sona was uh, uh, by using a metaphor, you know, a stringed instrument, a lute. Uh, and the Sona, like the Buddha, had a musical background. So he said, you know, you know, what, you know what it's like when, you're, when the lute is out of tune? You know, and, and you have to turn it to get it into tune, fix the strings? You know, he says, you have to do the same thing with your own practice. So the musician can hear when he or she is out of tune. You know, that musical uh, ability, that ear that you have as a musician. If you're a musician, I'm not. I don't have that ability. Uh, but we all have this ability to tune into whether or not uh, we are aligned with the Dhamma and the heart, and we're developing that ability. So in tuning in, uh, you know, as it is for a musician in tuning an instrument, uh, where, you know, relying on a capacity or a quality that transcends thinking about something, right? transcends thinking about something. You don't tune your instrument by thinking, well, I should turn the string a little bit this way or a little bit that way. You turn the strings and you hear. You hear whether or not in tune. You rely on a certain knowing quality. It's the same thing in making effort in meditation. You rely on a certain knowing quality, your inner wisdom. So the Buddha said to Sona, you know, put aside your past karma, be connected to your inner wisdom, your capacity to be in tune. You have a capacity to be in tune, just like you had a capacity to tune the lute. 
Use your inner wisdom. Your inner wisdom will incline you to what is skillful in terms of making your effort. What is skillful is going to be what's in your best interests, what's going to be in accord with the heart and your capacity for happiness. You know, when you're in tune with your effort, effort is easeful, pleasurable, joyful. Sona was able to tune his effort, tune his effort uh, uh, by relying on his innate wisdom, and that led him to awakening. But he learned to connect to his innate wisdom by tuning his effort in his meditation. That led him to ease and pleasure, concentration, wisdom, and release from suffering. So we have this inner wisdom just like Sona had. You may not have the inner wisdom like in, in terms of being a musician, but you have the inner wisdom uh, that you need in order to be able to be in tune with the Dhamma inside. You have this ability to be in tune, to be in balance. You know, it's, it's a, you know, if you use an example, an analogy, and it's a little bit more than an analogy, it's like physical balance, right? It's like you have this capacity to be in balance physically, right? The body has a, you don't have to tell yourself how to stay in balance as you walk when you leave the room, right? Parents know this, watching their children learn to learn to walk, right? You know, you don't have to teach your kid how to walk, really, right? I mean, it's a profound thing. I, I'm not a parent, but I had two, two siblings who are quite a lot younger than me. My brother Dave is 13 years younger than me, and I have very uh, significant memories of him learning to walk and just watching him. It's like, what is he going to do today? You know, he's, now he's starting to crawl. And now he's starting to you know, lift himself up. You know? Now he's starting to walk. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's just like he starts to come into alignment. You know? And he's walking, and he's, like, he's all over the place now you know, with this quality of grace and ease. Just like the Buddha memory of, of himself as a child. Right? You know? It's like kids, just, you know, it's just that natural. You know, and then we get contracted and tight, you know, and we're kind of grumbling along. I won't read the whole poem, but I, thinking about this in this talk, it's, it's a little bit of a long poem, but I'll just read the first part of Neruda's poem, Brown and Agile Child. Brown and Agile Child, the sun which forms the fruit and ripens the grain and trysts the seaweed has made your happy body and your luminous eyes and given your mouth the smile of water. I'll read the whole thing, what the heck. A black and anguished sun is entangled in the twigs of your black mane when you hold out your arms. You play in the sun as in a tidal river, and it leaves two dark pools in your eyes. Brown and agile child, nothing draws me to you. Everything pulls away from me here in the noon. You are the delirious youth of bee, the drunkenness of the wave, the power of the heat. My somber heart seeks you always. Right? Our, our heart seeks that. You know, that own inner agility and grace that we all have, that balance. My somber heart seeks you always. I love your happy body, your rich, soft voice, dusky butterfly, sweet and sure, like the wheat field, the sun, the poppy, and the water. Neruda could do it, you know? I mean, he, he had it down.
So there is an understanding in the heart that knows what's in our best interests and leads us to happiness. You know, so we're learning to be in tune with this understanding. So the retreat, you know, we're learning to be in tune in our practice. You know, it's a good way to think about your practice on retreat. It's a process, right, of coming into tune, coming into rhythm, as I've talked about. You know, as we get more concentration, we start to feel more ease, right? We're starting to come into our ease. Uh, and of course, we're getting a little closer to the heart. You know, as we come into the ease, uh, we start to come a little bit more into rhythm. You start to feel a little bit more in rhythm, right? Like that child, like the, as the Buddha recollected, you start to come a little bit more in rhythm and you start to get a little bit more closer to the heart. And as you get a little bit more closer to the heart, you start to really get in tune, right? You really start to get in tune with that deeper inner rhythm, right? really start to find yourself uh, in balance, in balance. You know, so you start to get into this place of ease, you start to come more into the heart, and uh, you just start to rely more on that to guide you through your meditation, through your day, through your life when you leave here. The teachings that's known as internal assurance, internal assurance. You're in tune. You're in tune. And when we're in tune, the organism thrives. Concentration develops. There's ease and pleasure. You learn a lot about this also in step two, the step of evaluation, which is a function of wisdom. Step two is a function of wisdom. This is really the first place in the teachings where you begin to develop discernment, wisdom. We bring awareness to the breath, awareness, simple awareness, and uh, we see dis-ease, right? We see we're out of tune, right? When you look at the breath, you know, the breath is a reflection of the mind. The body is a reflection of the mind. And there's been times, you know, particularly on retreat or a deeper concentration where I've looked at the breath, I see my whole mind right there in a couple of breaths. You know, I see my whole karma right there in a couple of breaths. So we look at the breath and we see some dis-ease, right? We see dis-ease. If we can just bring a simple awareness to that breath and it's clear, you know, uh, there's acceptance as opposed to, oh my God, look at the breath. Ugh. Really, there's a lot of dis-ease. So if we just bring awareness to the breath, we're able to see the dis-ease and uh, there's that little bit of space where there's acceptance and we can be a little bit connected to our innate wisdom, and our innate wisdom will incline us to ease. Just like our innate wisdom inclines the shoulder to a state of ease, our innate wisdom will incline the breath into ease. So if we allow it, our wisdom brings the breath to ease. You know, what we're doing, you know, and this is, this is insight, you know, this is discernment, you know, we're creating a space where there's a little bit of awareness of the breath and allowing our innate wisdom to bring the breath, that breath into an easeful state. Our wisdom will incline, inclines us to ease and pleasure, a favorable state. Mind can't do that. You know, the mind can't do that. You can say, I'm going to make my breath easeful. 
it's just going to cause disease. You just get enough space, you see the disease, and you allow your innate wisdom to bring the breath into an easeful. Uh, this is one you know, I've talked about this a lot over the years. You know that on you know at Wat Meta, something that Tanis Arabika would work with me incessantly and. Sometimes he'd get a little frustrated with me because I would think too much about the damn breath. I don't think he used the word damn, but I would think so much about the breath, and it was like I needed to start to use my innate wisdom to cultivate an easeful breath. I was only getting so far thinking about the breath and trying to figure it out. You know? I always say it's hard to describe step two. It's like, you know, it's like I get to step two, and I, you know, it's like, People think, like, what kind of teacher is this? Like, because so, sort of my rap on step two is, well, this is hard to describe. You know, it's like a little bit of a disclaimer here. But it is hard to describe because it's a function of wisdom. It's a function of discernment. It transcends intellectual understanding. It can't really be described. Now I finally realize, I feel better now. Why I can't, why I have, why I, because I was always, why can't I describe this? I'm just not a good describe, you know, it's like, you can't describe it, just like you can't describe music. Can't describe music. So in step two, we learn to come into tune. You know, we learn to find the rhythm, and it's always different, right? The rhythm of the breath is always different. Yeah? You can't think, I mean, you have some sense of, you have, you know, you remember what it's like to be in tune and how you connect to the heart and allow yourself to come into tune. But every breath is different. Every day is different. Every meditation is different, you know. So you're tuning into the most easeful breath that day. Step two, you know, is really the linchpin in Dharma practice because you're moving to wisdom. You're learning to use your wisdom to cultivate an easeful breath. So it's a profound learning. Now, concentration ultimately is a function of wisdom. It's a function of wisdom. You know, sheer effort, that's step one is pretty much sheer effort. Stay with the breath, mindful of the breath, do, whatever you're doing. That's, that's, effort. that's just effort. That's only going to get you so far. To really get to deeper concentration, jhana, the Buddha's concentration, that's a function of insight, of wisdom. Being in tune with your innate wisdom, internal assurance. So the breath comes into tune, and uh, there's a rhythm, and uh, the breath comes into regulation, uh, and it begins to regulate that quality of rhythm, uh, if you will, in tunedness, begins to regulate the body. As neuroscience tells us, the breath regulates the central nervous system. So the body starts to come into tune. You know, we support that by bringing mindfulness to the body, but you, know, you can't really bring ease to the body. You can bring mindfulness to the body and awareness and allow the body's wisdom, the mind's RNA wisdom, to bring ease to the body, right? To condition ease throughout the body. So our innate wisdom inclines us to ease through the body, pleasure, stillness, equanimity. The more we're in the body, the closer we are to the heart, to our innate wisdom, and we just allow our innate wisdom, right? You can even just do it right now. and Just let your wisdom bring you into a state of ease. You know, the 
mind can't do that. You know, but you can bring yourself into tune. Now we're trying to do that in a way that's consistent and we develop a strong quality of ease known as jhana. So when we are able to be in the body and we have that quality of jhana, uh, and, and you know, and 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 the the crowning quality of jhana is equanimity. You know, so we're just able to stay in the body, and when concentration is strong, we're sort of like right at the heart. We're right at the heart. Awareness converges at the heart, and uh, there's space, right? And there's nothing afflicting that space. In other words, thinking, and we're able to relate to our experience when we bring awareness to it with wisdom, you know, there's just that intuitive wisdom. We have that wisdom. And it's right there when we bring our awareness to the experience. So, you know, we don't have to do anything, really. You can't really do anything. Your job is concentration. Your job is concentration. You know, creating that space and that ability to have pure awareness and insight will happen. So, like we say, do concentration. In the Sutta, the setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion, the Buddha's first Sutta, uh, the first teaching he gave in that Sutta was the teaching on the middle path, cultivate skillful internal pleasure. You know, the path is a path not of denying pleasure, but not of looking for pleasure in external experiences like food or entertainment. It's about cultivating an internal pleasure, that pleasure that the Buddha remembered he experienced as a child Children experience that, right? And then the body gets all tight and connected and you lose the heart and you feel lousy and you start looking for pleasure and entertainment and the internet. So, you know, the Buddha, you know, he was tight and contracted. He was practicing self-denial. The body was tight and contracted. Look at the statues of the Buddha. You know, when he was practicing self-denial, I mean, he was not a guy who was like at ease. Uh, so he couldn't be connected to his innate wisdom. He wasn't connected to his innate wisdom. He, was, he realized that. He realized that. And he had that memory of being a child, you know, and being in that place of ease and pleasure and realized that in that state, he would be able to be connected to his innate wisdom and he would be able to develop, uh, develop insight. And, you know, and the insights were really the insights into the Four Noble Truths. So in the Sutta, the Buddha uh, uh, goes through the Four Noble Truths, the insights uh, that we develop, but it's the concentration that enables us to connect to our innate wisdom. It's the concentration that enables us to connect to our innate wisdom. So our job is to develop that concentration so that we can be closer to the heart. And if we turn to the dukkha, like I turned talked about last night, we make that shift to bring awareness to the thinking or the aversion or the desire, whatever it is we're clinging to, you know, our innate wisdom will understand it, will understand that the heart is blocked. And it, it, that heart is blocked because we're holding on 
and that we have a capacity to let go and what it's like when we let go. The noble truths, but our capacity to connect to our innate wisdom and perform the duties of the Four Noble Truths depends on concentration. Concentration enables us to be connected to our innate wisdom. That's what that means. Because there's a lot of confusion about that. You know, concentration enables you to connect to your innate wisdom. You don't have to do anything, really, other than turn to your dukkha. You know, be willing to turn to it and shine the light of awareness on it. If there's enough equanimity, we don't mind doing that. If there's enough pleasure in the body, we don't mind doing that. All right, I'll look at that pain. So one of the things is, is like we don't want to look, you know. And I, and I talked last night about, you know, looking at even just that subtle anxiety about the interview. You know, it's like we don't really want to do that, do we? We'd rather do just about anything else. We'd rather think about that, you know, try to fix it, you know, analyze it. We don't really want to look at it, do we? We really don't want to look at it, but that's what we're asked to do. You know, and it's just that finger snap of awareness is that we need. But you know, we, 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 we resist that. We resist turning to dukkha. The other great supporting condition for the great supporting condition for concentration, of course, is joy. Is joy. Appreciative joy is the proximate cause for concentration. You know, we are imbued with gratitude and joy in recognition of our own goodness that we've developed in practicing generosity and making the effort that we're making. We're imbued with the joy that we know when we consider the goodness in the world. So the path is all about cause and effect. You know, wisdom comes when there's joy, ease, pleasure, tranquility, and equanimity. So where are we? Where are we? That's the question. You want wisdom? You want to be free from suffering? Got to cultivate joy, ease, pleasure, tranquility, and equanimity. Those are the factors for awakening. The factors for awakening, not the factors of awakening. It's a crucial distinction. The factors for awakening. Joy, ease, pleasure, tranquility, and equanimity. If we want to be free, these are the qualities that we have to develop. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. I hope I haven't you know, indicated that. It's difficult to accomplish. It's a process, but it's what we're practicing in the service of cultivating joy, ease, pleasure, tranquility, and equanimity. The walking meditation is a really important part of the retreat. You know, it's interesting that Sona, the story of Sona and being in tune you know, related to his practice of walking meditation. You know, that he was pushing, he was out of tune, he got in tune and he awakened. There's another sutta where uh, the Buddha was asked, how did you get across the flood? You know, a classic metaphor for getting to the other side uh, of suffering. And he said, well, I didn't stand still and I didn't push ahead. I found just the right amount of effort. But that is a function of discernment, of being in tune, of being in tune, of being in touch with that knowing quality. You can't think your way into it. You have to learn to tune yourself to the heart. Of course, there's an element of trial and error. 
But as you learn to get in tune, your inner wisdom guides you to what right effort is. I love the Thai style of walking meditation that we're doing, right? I really think about it as uh, we're getting in tune. That's the way I think about my walking meditation practice. Now I'm being present, I'm being mindful of the breath and the body, uh, but uh, so much of it is about you know, the pace that I'm walking at and how the body is disposed. Right? I'm getting in tune, I'm finding a rhythm, I'm finding a rhythm. I'm finding an inner grace or an inner gracefulness. We all have that. You all have that. You know, you're learning to be in tune, to find that inner grace. You know, we're learning to connect to this inner grace, this gracefulness. The walking meditation is a process, a process of getting in tune. It's a beautiful practice, such a beautiful practice of finding our rhythm. So different than the Burmese style that I first learned, you know, that slow, methodical walking, lifting, moving, placing, you know. I mean, I would do that. I would be so awkward. You know, I'd watch people doing it. They'd be like falling over. People who've walked their whole life without <laughs> falling over once, all of a sudden, they're, they're falling over. You know, some of the, the Thai, there's great stories about the Thai Ajans coming to the, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, coming to the retreat centers in the U.S. and just being horrified watching people doing walking meditation in that Burmese style where they're just, you know, the stories of Ajahn Chah, like, you know, just being aghast and like coming up to people on their walking paths at IMS and saying, is something wrong? What's, what's wrong? You look so, you look so distraught. I feel so bad for you. <laughs> Years ago, I, uh, about 20 years ago, I was at Gaia House for a month doing their month-long solitary retreat, you know, in November. And, uh, you know, after about a week, uh, I just got beseeched. The, you know, I was, everything was great. And then all of a sudden down the road in Devon, in England came the armies of Mara, you know, and I was just a mess, a mess. As my friend Harry would say, I was uh, a fly on the windshield of life. You know? <laughs> I went into this place of real darkness, you know? real darkness. Uh, I couldn't meditate. You know, I would meditate and I would just fall apart. I would just fall apart in the meditation uh, in every way conceivable. And my practice in making my way back was walking meditation. Couldn't do the sitting. Uh, being indoors was just, you know, so I, I would just, every day I would just, for most of the day, I did walking meditation out on the lawn. It's the middle of November, and most days it was raining, the lawn was muddy, you know. Uh, but I was outdoors in nature, and my mind was brightened, and little by slowly, you know, I found my rhythm. Little by slowly, I came back to myself. You know, just walking back and forth slowly, you know, finding my rhythm, just like that child. Just like that child. It was just this healing process. You know, slowly, slowly, slowly getting in tune. Slowly, slowly, slowly walking back and forth, coming to the heart. You know, at the end of the retreat, I took a picture, because I walked in the same spot. It was like this muddy groove. 
in the lawn, you know, it was just, it, I mean, it was, you know, it'd be raining and I'd have my hood up and it was just, I was just walking, walking, back and forth, back and forth, found my rhythm, found my rhythm, you know, so we find our rhythm, we find our inner grace, a certain gracefulness. <clears throat> Some of my favorite passages in the Pali Canon, most inspiring ones, uh, are passages, and most of them are in the Udana, which means inspired utterance, uh, and they're a lot of the passages, or these ones that I'm referring to, uh, the Buddha is looking out at the monks walking in the fields. And he's inspired by the beauty of the monks doing their walking meditation back and forth in the fields, back and forth. And he, you know, he just says, ah, oh, this is just so beautiful to see these monks walking back and forth. And he gives an inspired utterance. You know, he's moved, he speaks of his joy. Any number of times as I've been in the room upstairs where I've done the interviews, you know, I've kind of looked out the window and I've looked out and I've seen you all doing your walking meditation out in the field, outside, back and forth, back and forth, finding your rhythm, tuning into the Dhamma inside, tuning into the Dhamma, tuning into the heart. And it's just, I felt that joy and that inspiration, kind of know what the Buddha must have felt. <clears throat>